Hi, Goddard in the World podcast listeners. Goddard in the World podcast is a project of the Goddard Alumni Council, where we're highlighting Goddard alumni accomplishments out in the world. My name is Casey Corona, one of your co-hosts, and I'm here with Amanda Lapson. Hi, Amanda. Hey, Casey. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing today? I'm good. I feel good. very productive today, Like, so that's great. <laughs> Hey, feeling productive is awesome. Um, it's wonderful. You get like this sort of, you know, pat yourself on the back and feel like you really did something that day. It's really much better than not feeling as though you didn't accomplish enough, right? Well, yeah, you know, like and in the like pandemic, it's like harder to have those days. Like, you know, small wins are good and I totally like, you know, abide by that. But um, when you feel like you've done even more than like small wins, like it feels good. I feel good. <laughs> Absolutely. I feel that way today, too. That's just awesome. So our uh, guest today is going to be Max Schenk. He is a friend of mine um, that both worked um, in and studied in uh, the EDU program, as well as the MFA program as well, MFAW program, right? Yeah, the yeah, yeah. MFAW right. is the writing program, That's right? right. Yeah. The writing program. Yep. Sorry about that. Yeah. yeah. So you know all the uh, sort of uh, little. Uh, oh uh, my god! Names. There's so many fucking acronyms. <laughs> like I don't know. Like it's it's so funny to like see people's little bios like with the the three letters. So like That's mine right. say IMA, and I'm like. Other people might not know what this is, but like <laughs> it's like a code, right? Like like other IMAers know what IMA means. <laughs> like, That's right. And like in EDU, you have like undergrads, you have your masters, you have the yeah. institute element. So it's like, oh, so we're saying we're EDU, which sounds normal, but it's also like, oh, this is accompanying both undergraduate and graduate levels working together. And that's that's one of the beauty things about Goddard. Oh, is I didn't that know you, that. Yeah. The undergrad is with you in the yeah. master's program? Yeah, the undergrad is with you at the same oh. time yeah so it's really interesting you people work on their master's thesis and then people are sometimes in their their throes of their four years so it's really unique that oh, way wow. yeah yeah, yeah. I no idea. and then licensure's <laughs> in there yeah so it's all a whole big conglomerate of people doing all kinds of weird interactions together it is it is you get to you get to see that from different perspectives for sure so yeah mm. um yeah so max is a very talented writer and also loves music and has a deep sense for music as well. And I wanted to get Max on the podcast because I knew not only would he be a great interviewer because he's got the radio and the music and the writing sort of sensibilities, but also because he's done some creative sort of elements and work in, um, you know, in the world, especially in connected to social media and writing around that, which we talk about in the interview, but he's created this whole entire fictional um, sort of cast and, and individuals through a couple of the, of the short story books that he's created. And it's wonderful that he carried that beyond writing the books and created as social media and Facebook in particular was becoming um, sort of alive and well and, and create a whole community around these fictional characters and let them live on um, in real time, which is really unique and really fun. I don't know what you thought about that, Amanda. But, yeah, uh, it was super fascinating. Um, he, I like, I was, I was just so interested because he's he's interested in or he has done like kind of tr more traditional forms of writing, like short stories and uh, you know other things like traditional avenues of publication. But um, the fact that he explores these like different versions, like the different ways to like tell stories and. Um, 
um, create characters um, is is really fascinating. Like the social media aspect, you'll you'll hear about it. But and we, I think we'll we'll have linked to it in the show notes. But like his like Facebook. Um, I, I, I'm saying family, but like so, kind of is I yeah, mean, community. I, I think yeah. they're a family, right? Like the characters are a family, and so that he that he posts as them and whatever you know, like it, I mean, it, it really it kind of says a lot about like our current relationship to social media too, like and who are you talking to on social media, and so. Yeah, I mean, I think when he started it, those were not the questions, but I think they might kind of be now, and he's addressed that in certain ways, which um, it's very fascinating. He's really great. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like, you know, oh, as if he was ahead of time, and that sounds very Goddardy, right? Doing things that are outside of um, maybe traditional realms and being very progressive in that way, and it does uh, open up to a lot of questions of where we are and what he's done, and the creativity of Max, and having some life experience behind him also, really sure. helps shape a lot of that that work um he's also got some really interesting ideas and in, in really traditional um rock music he's also really connected to the the sort of the beach boys and the beatles that way and mm-hmm. really interesting ways that in that sense and um i always want to you know tap on his brain about this album or that album because he's he's got a real sort of um history of that kind of stuff especially that and my he's not as old as my dad was but you know that sort of generational element of baby boomers he kind of crosses into yeah. that being a gen xer and so um yeah it's it's just really uh wonderful to get to know him and, and to share um, sort of his creative senses. And, and sort of also, we talked just about writing, um, which is just great. Yeah. If you haven't heard, I mean, I mean, I know you're, you're a, you know, a writer at heart and, and a writer mm-hmm. in your profession and all of those kind of things. So it must be nice to be able to talk with other writers about the process. Oh, yeah. And the process is like, oh, my God, it's so hard <laughs> like, you know, at first. Well, no, I mean, it, it continues to be. But yeah, no, it was it was really lovely to talk about, like, you know, especially some of the sources that like both of us like turn to or like that that I have turned to in the past that I need to like when I'm having like my writer's block, which I am currently having. <laughs> but, like, but he's I mean, he writes a lot like and and one of the one of the takeaways is like don't be afraid to write crap (laughs) which is which is so true um and i i am always afraid to write crap and so like (laughs) yeah it was it was really great like how he just like kind of puts a puts himself out there like in in, with his writing yeah and yet i was still surprised that like like having to do it as part of that process right so it becomes more structured and better as you sort of are doing it and making it professional right it reminds me a little bit of will you know just i'm just going to do this work and be production you know our podcast that we have with will and like and at the same time I'm sure Will feels the same thing about having to just sit down and do that kind of stuff because it's part of who he is. And that's how writing is too for writers. It's like, oh, this might suck, but I just have to do it. Even if I'm having a writer's block or feeling, you know, because it's it's innate, you know, it's It's kind of this part of It's it's a practice. Like you have to choose to do it. Like, and you have to choose to do do it all the time. Like inspiration isn't going to just hit you like sitting here or like playing video. I mean, mean, it can, it can when you're playing video games, I've had that happen. (laughs) Like, you know, like, cause, cause you do need to like noodle with different parts of your brain, but like, um, you also have to just sit down and fucking write. Yeah. <laughs> like if you're going to be a writer, like if, if you 
if you want if you are a writer, you have to write. That's it. You know? practice, <laughs> practice the craft, right? Practice yeah. the craft. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, um, please uh, enjoy our wonderful uh, interview with uh, Max Shank. Hello, Goddard in the World podcast listeners. My name is Casey Corona, and our guest today is writer Max Schenk. Max is currently working on several traditional and experimental fictional projects. Max Herrick Schenk was born in Carlisle, Pennsylvania in 1964. From as far back as he can remember, he says he enjoyed not only writing, but creating his own designs and publishing his work. Max started working on stories featuring a core set of characters in the fictional Pennsylvania town of Quaker Valley. It's like Gettysburg, except nothing happened there in 2001, and then attended Goddard College's MFA program in creative writing, where he finished the novel that became You Don't Think She Is as his master's thesis. He earned master's degrees from Goddard in both creative writing and education. While Max published his work in traditional formats, both in periodicals and books, as well as ebooks, he also experimented with drafting stories in his characters' voices, first via email and then later via multiple character pages on Facebook. This experimentation has manifested in multiple published titles, both in print and ebook, featuring the same core group of characters in a continuous timeline spanning from the early 1960s to the present. Max also has delved into the mystical teachings of Neville Goddard and has published two ebooks of quotes pulled from Neville's teachings. Max currently lives in Vermont, but he also has his eye on France. Good morning, Max. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Casey. Good morning. Good afternoon. It's twelve twenty-one here. <laughs> That's right. On the West <laughs> Coast, we're at nine twenty-one. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, we're we're crossing time zones here. So, Max, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We are so glad to have such a um, creative and um, amazing uh, writing force uh, from Goddard on the podcast this morning and or this afternoon, wherever the time may may allow us to live. We are so excited to hear about your work and about your history and at your connection to Goddard. So, I guess first, you know, I, I'm very familiar with with some of this information about you and bio, and you can find more about Max on his his website as well, um, Um, as well as uh, the interactions that he has uh, on social media also. Max, um, I want to just take us through sort of some of your early experiences. You know, when you talk about um, saying since you were very young and as far back as you can remember, really um, being involved and interested in writing and how that sort of uh, was established or worked as a kid and, and how you were shaped by by your your sense of place from the work I've I've read from you, that is a huge part of your writing is is Pennsylvania, and you really are able to capture that really well. So, can you just um, tell us a little bit about your your background and your you growing up and how writing was influential to you and and how you sort of wrote as as a as a young young person? Well, I think a lot of it was because my parents, you know, were both teachers. And uh, my dad was not only a teacher, but he was also a writer for the local newspaper. You know, he would uh, do stringer work for high school sporting events um, and even had a column for a while, you know. So I was always aware that writing was something that you could do 
and not make a big deal out of it. You know what I mean? It's like you you don't get this whole thing of I've got to be a writer or die. You know, it's just okay. Well, I do everything else that I do and I write. You know, and you know I haven't thought about that a lot in the past, but it kind of struck me a while ago looking at some of my dad's things and seeing things that he had written when I was younger and, you know, thinking like at age, age, age that I'm at right now, <laughs> um, I'm doing a lot of the same things that he was, you know, uh, writing radio, you know, finding my way with it, you know, and a little bit of teaching now and then as well. So I think that's the big thing that really got me into it was, was not, was just learning from example, you know, seeing that, that, the adults around me saw it as something important. Thanks so much, Max. That's that's amazing that you know you can be influenced by those who are around you like that, and and you you know you know teachers and educators are such an um, important influence uh, in that regard. So as you began to um, you know grow a little bit, and I know you went to to school originally uh, for grad school or no undergrad in Pennsylvania. How did how did um, uh, your undergraduate uh, studies b- uh, before you got to Goddard and some of that work began to shape and influence you as as you sort of began to to grow. In high school, I was always publishing little music zines and publishing newsletters for my friends and doing writing stuff and doing stuff in the talent shows and stuff like that. I also um, very early on was doing public address announcing in school. You know, every morning I'd read the announcements. You know, and Sometime during high school, there's a local um, arts program in central Pennsylvania um, every summer, and they had a writing program. And I thought, well, that sounds cool. I'll do the writing program this summer. The first summer I went, there were, you know, nine or ten kids in it, and it was a lot of fun and all that. So I signed up for the second year. I went the second year, and it was me and one other kid for the writing program. And the director of the program came in and said, all right, we're not doing writing, so which other program are you interested in? It's like, crap, you know. Um, So I picked radio, TV, film. And uh, that got me so interested into the radio and media part of it that uh, I went to Temple University for communications, got my undergrad there. And it's so funny because Temple was a great communications school. Philly's a good city, but one of the determining factors in my choosing Temple was that I knew that I could hop on the subway and within 15 minutes be at Veterans Stadium and go to Phillies games. So, you know, um, it all worked out, you know, and the Phillies went to the World Series one year that I was there, too. So that worked out, too. But that was that was the undergrad thing. It was mainly communications and the writing really wasn't pushed to the background. It was more like, okay, well, I am still writing, but what do I do with it? And do I want to channel it into these directions that they're saying I want to? Because it was, you know, okay, now you're in a communications program, so you're going to write news, or you're going to write for a TV show, or you're going to go to an ad agency. And I just wasn't totally sure that that was what I wanted to do, you know? So it it kind of... It gave me an undergrad degree, but I wasn't quite sure I was happy with it, you know, and that lingered almost the whole 20 years between the end of my undergrad and the beginning of my going to Goddard, basically. And that was kind of what spurred me, you know, because the interest in writing never went away and it wasn't totally satisfied by the communication stuff. And I thought, okay, well, I've got to do something with this, you know, and discovered Goddard. 
that's 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 amazing how um you know so much of our passions and things that are stirring it do, it doesn't go away right max when you when you feel that sort of element that you know this is inside of me and you are you know abound and and certainly um on the periphery and that stuff, you know, working in communications and, and working in broadcasting and, and interested about how that writing sort of works on the edges, but maybe not um, around the sort of core of who you are, but you know that it's there and there's something that you want to sort of um, continue on with that is really, is really special and important. I feel that same way in education. You know, sometimes I feel like I'm in education, but I'm really a writer, right? That's who I am, but I'm in education. You know, that feels maybe there were times when you felt like that with your undergraduate. And, you know, you're mentioning going to the Philly games. It's so funny because I think it's so weird how sometimes we'll choose directions and reasons why we go to certain places or or certain things, especially uh, more traditional elements sometimes for reasons that are outside of, you know, uh, maybe what, maybe what uh, we might know of as as the reason why, you know, I remember going to, not everybody that I went to school with um, ended up doing, you know, if, if I look at my friends from my undergrad years on their Facebook pages and my sophomore year college roommate, a fellow named John Kincaid, is now the morning drive host at a sports talk station in Philly. And it's what I always thought that he would be doing back then. But the 20 20 or 30 year road that he took to get there, I mean, there was literally 15 to 20 years where he wasn't doing a thing at all to do with radio, you know, so it must have been the same deal for him. How do I work this into my life, you know? And, Mm -hmm. you know, same deal with another friend of mine who's now working uh, in the music industry. It's so funny because he said, you know, I would have I would have never thought to be in the music industry, but I heard you playing Frank Sinatra through the dorm room walls, and I loved it. And I thought, wow, I love Sinatra. I got to find out more, you know. Um, <laughs> but again, he was he was in a totally different major than than that. So again, he went through this whole process from his undergrad to to his career, just trying to figure out, okay. Now I'm an adult. Now what do I do? You know, how do I map this out? How do I work this? You know, and that's one of the things that I liked about Goddard was because there was room to have that sort of uncertainty even during the process. You know what I mean? It's almost like that was part of the process, you know, so that was cool. Max, um, going back for a second, uh, you said that the camp, the summer camp really turned you onto radio and you sort of got obsessed with it. <laughs> what, what was it about that medium? Because you, you, you have said in our, before we started recording that you also produce a radio show now. What is it about that medium that attracted you? Really, you know, at age 11, I discovered the Beatles. The, the motivation originally was just, okay, I'm going to go to the college radio station and get a show and be able to play Beatles records on the air. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> yeah, but, my, but again, going way back to what I said about my dad, my dad was also a DJ um, in his college years. And then when he moved to our hometown originally, so, and, and he was also for, you know, close to 40, 50 years, the public address announcer at the um, high school and at the local college. You know, so there was always that sense of, you know, you can do stuff with your voice and, and, you know, make it a job. And I think what it was about the summer camp uh, in particular that, that kind of struck a chord was, oh, I can do this for school. I can do this as a job. It doesn't just have to be a hobby. You know, it's like, it can actually be something that, that is a, a vocation, even if it's only part time, you know? 
So it wasn't just fun. It was something practical. It was, it was being validated for it, basically, I guess is what I would say. And then you were also the PA announcer at your high school, <laughs> um, like your dad was, and then you were? Well, you know, I did the announcements in the morning. You know, for, you know, I rotated with a couple other kids. I have no idea how I got into that. I guess they just thought, well, he's Larry's son. Let's put him on the mic, you know. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Was that that, was that like in the morning uh, when people were in homeroom? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Lead everybody in the Pledge of Allegiance. And then, you know, today is day two and whatever. Was there news that you announced over the PA? It was just your usual high school morning announcements, except instead of an adult reading them, they had a student, you know, at junior high, my voice probably cracking all over the place too. You know what I mean? It's, it's amazing, Max, you know, you talk about the Beatles and you talk about baseball and all these kind of things that, you know, were passion stirring elements, you know, and then you're at the camp and then you're, you know, you've got your family influence and then them being around on communication. It's just, it's so incredible how, you know, we can find things like you said, that can stir an interest and a passion in us. And then we can recognize, oh, we can do that as as a, our life, you know, and as, as a career element and things. And then things like writing for you. And I want to get into sort of about, you know, how that journey, as you mentioned with your friends, how it took them, you know, that 20 years to maybe get to where they were going to be or, you know, that time in between, you know, because we know that, you know, a place like Goddard attracts um, people to have that sense of creativity and innovation and really wants them to sort of allow for that variance, right? That adaptivity. And I know I had that in my education studies and I know you've had that when you were at Goddard in in several capacities. Um, So can you tell us about sort of, you know, I know there was a big gap in there from your undergraduate and and the work you did in life, right? Life occurs. But can you tell us a little bit about that journey to getting to Goddard and, and what it was like to finally land there? And in that program, the MFA program, and what, what it felt like to, to do that kind of work. Well, you know, it's like after my undergrad, I got married a little too soon, I think. And while I was doing the communication stuff as an undergrad, I was spending almost as much time on my studies as I was going over to the piano rooms in the music building and locking myself in there and practicing and playing and singing and, you know, learning how to play these songs that I loved, you know, and really for almost mm, thinking 15 years after undergrad music really overtook everything. And the way that the writing came out was in singer songwriter stuff. You know, I was doing uh, singer songwriter gigs and open mic stuff um, around Philly, you know, for five or six, seven years. Um, my, my second ex, I actually met her at an open mic. I was singing and I heard this angel voice harmonizing with me from the, uh, audience. And that was the woman who became my second wife. But, uh, the writing really manifest itself and expressed itself during those years, primarily in songwriting. And again, you talk about how your passions and the things you like and enjoy push you to do something. Really, one of the things that pushed me to want to write songs and perform was just this feeling of, you know, nobody's really writing the kind of songs and music that I like. So why don't I, (laughs) you know, Um, but uh, during that time, for some reason, I just started feeling like I wanted to write fiction and I wanted to write prose. 
I guess in the early 90s, mid 90s, just started trying to do it, you know, and I wasn't really happy with what I was doing. But uh, that that was really the first sort of and I, I'm, I'm not even sure where that came from, why that came up at that time, you know, mm. but um, I remember the breakthrough sort of time that that I really started working on it in earnest. My ex was going away for like two weeks or so. I can't, she was, she was visiting someone in the Adirondacks. I guess they were having health problems and she was going to go up and stay at Lake Clear with this friend of hers. And before she left, I bought a pack of six blank notebooks and I said, I'm going to fill these. And I just started writing and started writing and that was the kernel of what became the stories and the characters that I've been working on ever since, because it was a story about adult characters. And then I thought, you know, this is interesting. These adult characters, what's their backstory. And then when I started writing the backstory as notes, that's when the prose started coming up, you know, and I started mm-hmm. writing these, you know, but even then that was still 10 years before I, I came to Goddard and got in the MFA program. I toyed around with it that long. You know, going to uh, readings, taking workshops, you know, um, carrying around these huge overstuffed binders of my, you know, quote, end quote book that just was ridiculous how sprawling and formless it was. But at least I was I was, you know, trying to do something. Yeah, that acting on that, you know, passion, you know, driving you to just go, right? I mean, I, I've quoted this already in, a, in my own podcast that we did with me, but, you know, when, when we say, you know, there's nothing to, to writing, you just sit at a typewriter and bleed, you know, that's the quote, you know, from Herman Hemingway. And um, <clears throat> it's really great. I love it because it really is like, you know, sometimes you have to just get that out. Obviously, it was coming from a place that you needed to start doing that, and it, it came through music. And doing those kind of elements. And then it came to this place where you want to start writing your, your fiction. And, you know, I've read your book and it's amazing. And we will get into that. But um, that's amazing that you took that time, that decade, and you were just starting to put it down and write and write and write in these, in these um, notepads. And you were starting to sort of formulate these characters that you've been working on since. And the creativity that comes out of that, I want to, I want to uh, learn more about because I was really amazed at how you've been able to adapt those characters and find that place over time, uh, Max. So, okay, so that's, that's wonderful. You're, you're in this place, you're doing this work. So, so Max, what leads you to actually finding Goddard after those 10 years? You know, you've, you've begun in 2001. It sounds like you began to, um, you know, have more of that, that, that set of, uh, stories that were fe- featuring in your in your um in your town of uh, Quaker Valley and and those characters that you looked at those backstories and there's a real sort of nostalgia element that exists in that writing. Um, so can you take us a little bit uh, through how you begin to formulate why you wanted to maybe go to a place or or do more more um I don't want to say traditional because Goddard's obviously not traditional but you wanted to structure that and, and have a direction in that. How how did you get to Goddard, you know, coming from Pennsylvania and and how did that work for you? You know, my first ex right after we split up 1992, she went she went straight from American University into the MFA program at Goddard. And mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about it except the name at that point, but it's stuck in the back of my mind, I guess. And the ironic thing I found out later is that one of her faculty advisors actually ended up being one of my faculty advisors in the uh, 
program. I don't know if that faculty advisor has made the connection or not, but um, yeah, so it was in the back of my mind and working in in a library, working at a college, I knew I wanted to do something with it and thought that maybe teaching might be a good idea and thought that an MFA would give me that sort of ticket, but that wasn't at the front of my mind. I really, I, I wish I could remember how Goddard actually came back to me. You know, I, I, we'd made trips to the North and I knew I loved Vermont and I loved upstate New York. I, I wish I could really give a definitive answer of what exactly led me to, you know, apply to Goddard. Because I don't want to say, well, it was my first ex. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> were you were you looking at other MFA programs, or did you just apply to Goddard's? I think that I looked at a couple. You know, wanting to travel, I looked at a couple in in Canada, but not really seriously. You know, it mm-hmm. seemed to me, looking at Goddard, that it was the best way for me to do what I wanted to do and continue to do what I was already doing. You know, it kind of offered me the safety net of, uh, of being, and I'm sure that this is the case with a lot of adult students too, that, that they needed to, they need to continue to work and continue to have their place in the world that they've already made, but they want to move forward at the same time, you know? So that was something that was really appealing to me was that I wouldn't have to go live on campus, you know, Mm. I, I could do it in a lot of ways on my terms. And that, that, that was a big appeal for me both times I did it. Mm, that's wonderful, Max. I, you know, I love how you describe that idea of, um, uh, you know, it allowed you to continue to do what you were already doing, but can, you know, do it in a way that, you know, gave you that freedom to continue that work and also push you in that regard. That's, that's how I felt. I felt when I was going from my undergrad to, I was like, Oh, this just makes sense. I want to continue in education. I don't really know fully uh, what's going to come out of this, but I do know that it's going to continue to happen. I think even Amanda, you know, with, with her, her, her love journey that has, has happened and a lot of her work and, and, and leading up to Goddard and, and post Goddard in New York and all of that, you know, sometimes fate, you know, just sort of happens and occurs in that regard. And, and fate is part of that. Max, could you just talk a little bit about your writing process and, and, and what you go through the MFA program in particular? Because I really want, I think our listeners really want to hear about that in particular, about you writing during, during the MFA program, writing at Goddard and what that looks like for you. Because I, I do love the voice in which you represent in the work that obviously you've been doing for a long time. Um, but also how maybe Goddard helped you to continue to shape and move and, and create that work uh, while you were, you were there. And, and, and so what was that like? I mean, obviously writing can both be uh, stressful. It can be therapeutic. It can be all kinds of things. But can you tell us a little bit about the MFA program and what it was like being in there and, and doing the actual writing? You know, there's a great quote in a book, one of the best writing books that there is called Writing Down the Bones by Natalie Goldberg. And she lays out rules for an exercise that she calls practice writing. The idea is to just set a a timer and to write, keep your hand moving and write continually while that time is going. So if you say two minutes, you just keep your pen moving for two minutes. And her last rule of practice writing is you're free to write the worst junk in America. And I really feel like that was a key at Goddard. 
You know, I had this group of characters that I wanted to do something with. I had a big sprawling manuscript with all these different vignettes that you really couldn't tie into a traditional story. And I had advisors who said, just write it, just write it, you know, keep writing it. You're free to write the worst junk in America, basically, you know, Mm -hmm. and it gives you an incredible feeling of freedom to know that you can draft through things. And, and one of the biggest lessons that I learned as a writer, just from, from, you know, being in the program and then, you know, of course, applying it on my own is that, you know, these pieces don't come out fully realized and perfect. You know, you do write the worst junk in America when you're starting out. I mean, I've written some things that just are horrible, you know, but you put the horrible stuff down on paper and you print it, then you revise it and then it gets a little better. And then you tweak it a little more, you tweak it a little more, you know? So, and it it was reinforced in the MFA program that the real work of writing is the work of revising, you know, and crafting the piece. You can't just write something off the top of your head and put it out there and think that it's going to be okay. Although that's something that I've done lately. Um, You know, you quoted that Hemingway thing about just write until you bleed on the paper or however he put it. But uh, one of my favorite lines is from Edward Abbey, who was a nature writer. And, you know, he said, in order to be a writer, one must actually sit down and write. And therein lies the problem because you have to do the work. And, you know, every, every writer, every working writer, every writing teacher that I've ever encountered says that same thing. Even someone like Jerry Seinfeld, he, someone in a chat I saw once said, what do you think of writer's block? What do you do about writer's block? And, you know, you expect this thing. Well, I do. And his answer was just writer's block is just a made up BS excuse for not doing the work. And I really think that that's true. But that was the big thing that I got from Goddard is having that pounded into my head and reinforced and applying it and seeing, yes, this is true. It's not just a truism. You know, it actually is something that, that practically leads to better writing. Yeah, writing down the bones is a formative text for me as well. And I love what uh, Natalie Goldberg says in the, I think it's in the beginning uh, where she's talking about likening her writing practice to her Buddhist Zen meditation practice of you you sit and you look at a wall. And you stay there. <laughs> that's, that, that's the practice is si- just sitting. So just sitting down and showing up to the page. You, and and I and what the other thing that she said that I really love about like the the hand is connected to the heart, and which is why she advocates for uh, hand handwriting. Like yes. we were talking about your notebooks, and for me too, especially when I'm writing down the bones, as she says, um, because I have a tendency when I sit at my computer and and look at the page, I have a tendency to edit without even wanting to, because it, I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. But it's a yeah. physical thing. I mean, um, mm-hmm. I have a friend from the MFA program. Um, I'll say his name, Sean Caravan. Hi, Sean. I hope you listen. Um, cool. <laughs> and uh, he recently stopped using word processing. He pounds out all of his manuscripts on typewriter, 
you know, I oh, think wow. he, and, and he said, you know, what I've always said about handwriting and what you were saying about hand, heart, mind, um, mm-hmm. is that it's a physical act and you are accessing something physical while you're doing this. And he said that the, the pounding of the keys, you know, and, and the feel of the, the machine, um, accesses something different than the handwriting, than, than a word processor, you know, all these yeah. little things there's, they're subtle, but, but yeah, you are trying to get to that hand, heart, mind thing. And on a totally different note, you know, Dizzy Gillespie, somebody asked him once what, what the goal should be for a good jazz musician. And he said, the goal should be that when you hear something in your mind, it comes out of your horn and there's no pause. And that's what you want as a writer too. You think of something mm-hmm. and you write it, you know, there's not, you know, but also, um, like I said, with revision and the fact that the piece isn't fully formed, you know, there's a writing teacher, Donald Murray, who wrote a great book called, uh, a writer teaches writing. And he, he goes into this in depth, how, you know, the, the common conception of writing is that you have this piece in your mind and it's fully realized and all you're doing is transcribing your thoughts. And that's not true. As you said, even as you write it, you find that it's changing. There's all different sorts of dynamics to it. Yeah. And it is a physical act. You can't deny that. Yeah. With uh, Jerry Seinfeld, I remember this was a quote that I read on like a task list thing <laughs> that I that I toodle do or something but they said that his practice is to write one joke a day and if he didn't write the joke that that day that's you know he did he didn't do his work um <laughs> and I I thought about that I'm like one joke that doesn't seem like a lot you know but yeah. when when you really think about it it's like okay he has to craft the joke like he he probably looks at his notebooks uh i know larry david has like a bunch of notebooks mm-hmm. um he probably looks at his notebooks of observations and is like okay <laughs> well his his jerry seinfeld's new book is this anything he probably asks that of his observations is this anything <laughs> right <laughs> and then crafts it into something have you ever seen the documentary of him called comedian no, um, I think it is. So. Yes, it is, yes, I've seen it. It is absolutely fascinating because it shows him after Seinfeld basically going back to small clubs and building a whole new act. He's rejected everything that he's ever done before. And it shows him doing what you're doing. It shows what the process is, not just thinking up the jokes and writing them, but then taking them up on stage and some of them fall flat and he's horrified, you know, and he's playing these little clubs where you would think somebody of his star power would not go anywhere near but he said this is how you have to do it you know Mm -hmm. but but that that part of it too for a comedian i guess you know is having the audience and getting that immediate sense of is this funny or is it not funny yeah with writing that's a little different you know you're trying to do that for yourself and might take a little bit of time to sort of you know put that in but that that work that structure you know like like you're saying amanda you know you're making that joke a day i'm sure uh, for writers, it's the same sort of thing. Can I put together one paragraph or or two sentences today that really work well? That's that's like a job, <laughs> and that you at the same time there are times where that just flows out of you, you know, and drops out of you, and you're just you you can't keep it in, and you have to write, you know. And so it's interesting that dynamic about considering it, you know, putting in the work, and at the same time part of who you are, you know. And I love what you said there, Max, about the idea of writer's block because this is complete, you know 
quoting that as this BS sort of thing where it's like, no, no, just you have to do it. You know, you have to yeah, do it. Yeah, it's an excuse. So. I totally agree with that. It's my experience that I'm just making an excuse if I say I've got writer's block. And because the one thing that I learned from the Goddard MFA program and since then in applying it is if the whole, if the real work of writing is revision and crafting a piece, you can't revise nothing. You know, you can't revise a blank page. You've got to put something down. Even if you just write, this sucks, I hate it. You know, there's five words. I mean, just start <laughs> crossing out, you know? <laughs> And, I love that. Uh, some of my journals do look like that. <laughs> like, this sucks. Uh, I don't want to do this. <laughs> you know, but that's the job of a journal, you know. I just, yeah. as an aside, I have to say that one of the people that I've encountered along the way here, when I was working in uh, Stowe, Vermont, a few years back, there was a woman that I worked with who said she'd been keeping a journal for 12 years. And one day we sat there by the bread baking ovens and we were writing and she got to the last page of her journal. She said, okay, time to burn this. And I'm like, what? And she said, I burn my journals as soon as I fill them. She said, it's so cathartic. And I thought I could never, I, I could never dream of burn, you know, <laughs> but you know, to her, it was a totally different thing. She didn't want a record of it. She wanted to get it out and get rid of it. Well, that's what they they taught me in um, an undergrad, and also I found out in Goddard. You know, the idea of um, a good teacher uh, destroys all of his lesson plans after five years, his or her lesson plans after five years, which is like what? Even the good ones, like even the ones that are great, you know, you're like, why would you destroy those? It's because it keeps the fire moving, right? It keeps the energy, the innovation, the creativity moving, and I know that's like exhausting for a teacher to do that, but it's a similar sort of cathartic process, like. You know, if you're still doing a lesson plan that worked 25 years ago, uh, that might not be keeping up with how sort of learning or creativity is sort of happening. So it's like one of those things where you have to adapt and move in the same sort of way that your your students are, your learners, and you as a learner, right? a lifelong learner, um, that kind of thing. So Max, I'm really fascinated here, and I want to hear more about your sort of stories, and and, and we'll get to some of that stuff as we transition to um, Post Goddard, but you know, I met you through the the, the education program um, and the masters you did there. So, what made you? I mean, obviously, your parents were teachers and that kind of thing, and you did the MFA first, and then so what made you continue with Goddard or you know continue on with Goddard and, and move into the education program? Did you think you were going to become a teacher? Did you think, hey, this is just another building block stone? Did you just love Goddard and Vermont so much in learning you wanted to continue? What really occurred for you to continue on after after your MFA? There were still things that I wanted to explore, you know, and I definitely did did want to teach. And there was stuff with music that I wanted to explore. I ended up doing my my education master's thesis about how non-traditionally trained musicians learn music. And that was really me. And I, I feel looking back on it now that it might have been a way for me to wrap up the singer-songwriter stuff, you know, and to put music in its place in my life since I was giving so much attention to my writing. But also just being able to explore that. And then at the same time, in a practical sense, having that degree to add to my arsenal. I mean, I know that sounds kind of silly, but to have an MFA in creative writing and a master's in education uh, got me a couple gigs that I wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Got me one library job 
that I loved that ended up being really the best job that I ever had. And then a couple teaching college positions too, where they said, we really like your, we like, we like all your experience, but we also like what you've done academically. Somehow feel funny saying that that was a consideration, but it was, you know, but I, th- I think looking back, you. no, it's just, I was going to repeat what I said that, that I think it was a way to put the music in, into, into its place in my life and find a place for it and make sense of it. That's, that's wonderful. I love that you, you know, it's a master's of arts in education, right? So we're taking in elements of mm-hmm. that. And, you know, I found it Goddard in the education program, which is really fascinating. You know, I was going to be a teacher there. I was going to get my teacher licensure and that did not happen for me. I, I shifted and changed um, as some of that sort of grew out of that. But I found oftentimes with our little cohort and group, and I'm sure it's happened before and since um, at Goddard, but in the education program in particular, People have all kinds of interesting backgrounds in other things, right? Whether it's music or politics or film or, you know, all these other areas. And then they're, they're using education as a learning, you know, sort of tool and device to centralize that. So it's so fascinating to me that you talk about to wrapping up. You, you needed that to continue to be, you know, form, formulated and to have some kind of conclusion around some of that that music stuff that you were doing previously decades earlier and sort of figuring out how to sort of work in an educational bow with that, you know, and think about, look, I was doing this stuff and I was doing this writing inside of my love for music. And how does that look like from a learning and education perspective? So you spent a lot of semesters then back to, it was sort of back to back if I remember, right, Max, did you have a break in between the MFA and the, the education program? I think I took three years between them. Dates dates are eluding me. I think I did uh, the writing from five oh five to oh seven, and then did uh, education from oh eight to ten, maybe nine okay. to ten. I, you know, but you know, yeah. because I was in Pennsylvania, and then I moved up to moved up to Vermont, and was in Vermont for two years before I actually got into the education program. So it was okay. it was two to three year break between. Yeah, yeah, that's that's um. And you were up in Vermont during that time. So it's like, I don't, I don't know about you, but I have that, even though I don't live in Vermont, the West Coast, and I, I think a lot of Goddardites are all over the place, obviously, in different world, uh, different countries, and um, but some are, are localized. But there is this sort of sense and feeling that when you're connected to the North like that and in, in, in and around Vermont, and I know that's a space that you, and a place that you love, you know, you have that connection to your home in Pennsylvania, but that you do have some love for, for Vermont and that area. And um, cause you've been up there for, for a while. That's wonderful uh, that you continued in that education and you're able to shape that. And it also identifies and shows you must've really loved Goddard in a lot of ways after your MFA, if you wanted to continue and do another program in education, I think getting a couple of masters is, um, I, w- I wouldn't say um, unheard of, but that's, you know, when you're doing that kind of place to continue on that um, in that same school, you know, that that's a, that's a place that it's pretty incredible. Did you, did you have a, a particular affinity for, for Goddard and just want to continue to learn and, 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 you know, and stretch yourself in that regard? What, what was it about the Goddard that, that, that you loved so much that you wanted to continue in a second degree? As soon as I saw the way that the pedagogy was at Goddard, I just couldn't imagine why anybody would ever want to do it any other way. Why wouldn't you approach things with curiosity and be encouraged to explore things that you might not otherwise? When when I taught, went back and taught at community college, it was frustrating in a way to run into students who didn't have that mindset, you know, and they they almost – 
didn't know what to do with this sense of freedom that you're giving. Oh, you mean I can really write a paper on anything I want? And yeah, yeah, you know, I can really do this. I can really do that. Yes, yes. You don't need to think and think outside the box. You can think outside the box. You don't have to stay in a little box. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? It's, it's, I'm having a little bit of difficulty verbalizing, but the short answer is um, why do a second degree at Goddard as opposed to someplace else? And I also did look at other schools for education as well, where I could have gotten licensure, fast-tracked and all that. But it, it was just that thing again of why would I want to go anyplace else? This is the this is the way that I think, and this is the way that I like to learn, you know. And if the education program is anything like the writing program, and it seems to me that it was, it's going to give me exactly what I need in more ways than I can expect. That's great. Yeah. I um I chose Goddard uh, kind of on a whim, <laughs> so, but it was a, it was a place. So I went into the, I was in the individualized master of arts, uh, which is part of GGI Goddard graduate Institute now, because I had this interest in different things. And so I didn't know how else I would be able to bring them together. And Goddard seemed to be the best place to do that. But through this podcast and through meeting, like meeting Casey and then talking to some of all of your cohort, I am learning all the pedagogy behind it. And mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, oh, cool. There's words for that. <laughs> you know, right. like, but that's the way I was too. Yeah. Yeah. Student-centered learning and all of that. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like I just, I was just there and doing my thing. But uh, I mean, and I had gone to traditional schools before. I Florida State and Pace University. I don't know. Like I, I just didn't put a name to it because it didn't, like matter and the the uh, advisors I had how they encouraged me to think about what I actually brought to this work uh, and read everything read what you're interested in and then and yeah. then we'll hone down yeah. <laughs> kind of like the writing thing just write everything and then figure it out later <laughs> but also so. you know like I said with the music stuff that that I knew that I had not taken a course called songwriting 101, you know, and then, okay, now you're going to go out and play songs. It's like, I listened to records and went down and banged out chords on the piano and wrote crappy Mm -hmm. songs and over and over and over again. And then after a while I thought, you know, this is actually a pedagogy and there's a name for it. I ran into that so many times. It just made me think for some reason, I just read this great book by John Steinbeck, I think it's called the tale of Pippin the fourth. It's about um, a man who's chosen to become the King of France in the 1950s. And uh, there's a scene where there's this couple in a, in a bar and the man is American and the woman is French. And the man says to the woman, you're a dish. And she says, I'm a dish, you know? And I thought, you know, she didn't even know what the name was, but she loved it, you know? And that's the way I was the whole time I called her. I'm a dish, you know, I, I don't even, I didn't even know there was a name for this, but I love it, you know? And I'm glad to, to get the validation and see that, you know, I'm not walking around life feeling crazy. Like there's something that I see here that is important that, uh, that I'm not getting validation for, but there's actually a way that this can fit into the world and people take it seriously. 
you know? Well, yeah, I was just listening to a podcast uh, where that Dave Grohl was being interviewed uh, on and he doesn't know how to read music, but he's pretty <laughs> successful. <laughs> yeah. so I'm like, he doesn't know how to read music? Like, that seems weird. Yeah, you know, but- that was right. But that was the thing that was fascinating about delving into that whole idea of how do non-traditionally trained musicians learn music? Because sure. when you talk to them, the guy would say, well, you know, if I want to learn a song, I just put the record on and I play it over and over again. But that's not really learning. You know what I mean? And <laughs> the interviewer said, why is it not learning? You know, same deal. That's amazing. So um, post Goddard, did you go to not teach music? Well, I don't know, teach music or teach? What did you, what did you, you you were talking about a couple of college positions and library positions that you were able to get because of the Goddard degrees? Um, I taught at uh, CCV a couple semesters. That was fun. Then I had to go back to Pennsylvania for a time, ostensibly to help my parents out. And uh, while I was there, I worked as a children's librarian and that was the best job ever, you know, and it just (laughs) felt like it just felt like it pulled everything together. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And yet I couldn't have mapped it out. The thing that I learned, you know, just uh, encountering John Holt and his education writing, for instance, in the education program gave me so much insight into how children think and how to deal with them on a day to day level. And having the confidence as a musician to sit up there and do singing and, you know, as a storyteller to sit up there and tell stories to the kids. And then when the uh, supervisor of the department says, we want you to do a science camp, you know, and it's, it's dealing with space, you know, not feeling like, oh my God, what am I going to do? But like, okay, this is something new. I thought of my advisor at uh, the MFA program, uh, have to give a shout out to her, Nikki Morris. God, she's great. Um, she said once, um, whenever I want to learn about something, I find the best way to learn about it is to teach a class on it, you know, and that stuck with me as well, you know, so I thought, okay, I'm just going to delve in and do it. But, you know, it seems like it's, it's removed from what I did on its surface, but it just felt like a sort of a culmination and, you know, a really cool blossom that came out of all these different things that I did that was totally unpredictable. And it was the best job, you know, working with those littles. That's awesome. Just have to say that anybody who teaches kids, children's librarian is the way to go because you don't have to grade them. The parents are there, so you don't have to deal with disciplinary <laughs> issues. I mean, there's, it, there's no, there's no downside to it, you know? Anyway, that's what, yeah, that's that's a that's a wonderful um, addition that you said that there. Um, yeah, yeah, and you get to give them any book that you want, right? <laughs> so, For sure, to read them yeah. yourself. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Um, so Max, I know we're going to be running short on time here. I want to hit a couple of things left at the end of this podcast because you have some incredible um, interests and work that you're still doing. And I really want to make sure that we hit on some of this innovation um, elements that you did with your characters and your stories, um, especially um, right around social media and your book. Um, you know, I've read your book, You Don't Think She Is, um, and it really encapsulated so much of place and humor and storytelling of um, callback to nostalgia and just this shaping of great deep 
character um, developments. I really um, felt as though I knew them. And then I was able to follow them post uh, reading your book online, which I just thought was so creative when, when Facebook began oh, to come so up. Cool. Yeah. And the social media stuff began to really develop. You began to really continue those characters live in, in, in real time. And it was really um, fascinating for a while. Can you just tell a little bit about how you came up with that creation and how you sort of I know it was a lot of work. I know it was just by being your friend and knowing sort of what you had to do on that and some of the the um, challenges and barriers that came up um, through social media for that too. But, you know, can you talk a little about how you wanted to continue telling those those character stories and, and do it in a sense that was live in action? And I, I've never seen anyone do that before. Maybe you had and pulled it from other people, but really incredible incredible stuff. Can you talk a little bit about um, your, those characters and, and being alive and, and living with them all those years and, and how they continue to be shaped post your book as well? Hmm. Well, it is incredible, Casey, you know. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> seriously. One of the things that I, th- first things I thought was, you know, people talk about books that they've read when they were little and things that influenced them. I was never a big fiction reader, but one of the most important books that I ever read when I was little, not little, like, you know, 11, 12, 13, was a book called The Marx Brothers Scrapbook. And it was interviews with Groucho Marx and then with all of the people who worked with Groucho Marx. And they would tell these stories and Groucho didn't always remember what had happened accurately and the people around him contradicted him and all that. And there was a very conversational feel to it. And that was a really, really huge, made me think about how you should tell a story that you get different perspectives telling these different things that happened and they may not always line up. You know, people are going to have a different point of view. So I have two main female characters in my story universe and a ma- and a couple main male characters. And they're not always going to agree on what happened. And rather than stand there as an omniscient narrator, I thought that it would be more fascinating to write notes between them and let them tell the story and contradict mm-hmm. each other and then you get a sense of who they really are. Um, if you see, for instance, my character Margot contradicting uh, someone constantly, you start to think, is she just a contradictory person or is she right? That whole idea of point of view and writing, you know, in what they call an, an epistolary format, when I came up with the characters, one of the first things that I did, I have no idea where I got this idea to create email addresses for them and try to tell a story in email by sending the messages back and forth and then assembling the the email messages chronologically and, and stacking them into a book. It was just more of an experimental thing than anything, I guess. And so when social media came along, I just thought, okay, well, I have a book of short stories at that point. I may have readers who want to interact with the characters. It might be fun for people to interact with the characters, you know, and then further explore what they may be doing as adults based on what was in the earlier stories where they're teenagers, you know? So it, it, it was all driven just by a spirit of, again, going back to Goddard, nobody said I couldn't, you know, and uh, why not try it and see if it works? You know, and if it doesn't work, you just get rid of it. You know, it was, it's, it's funny. I just read 
a good interview with uh, Charles Schultz um, in one of the volumes of Peanuts cartoons. And he was saying that one of the perils of having a daily strip, comic strip, is that you try things and put them out there. And if you're not careful, they may not work, but then they're already out there and you have to kind of look out for that because you can end up ruining something and not be aware of it, you know? And I've, I've noticed that at work too, that there are a couple plot lines that I've tried to work with through the social media story that haven't quite worked, you know, but again, you can't be afraid to edit yourself ruthlessly, basically. Yeah. I mean, I think in comic books, uh, there's, I, I know like, you know, for, Marvel or whoever, they probably are pretty rigorous, but there are definitely contradictions in, yeah. in the, you know, how different people interpret the characters. So, yeah, I think it's, I think it's fair to say that just put it out there. Yeah. <laughs> like it's not an end all be all mythology. George Lucas edited his, <laughs> his work. Like, uh, Spielberg, right. you know, like, and so I think. Yeah, and and yeah, maybe fans will get mad, but who cares? Yeah, you know, it's like it, it, it's 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 kind of to flex your muscle as a writer, you know. I mean, one of the books that I did the last few years, and someone said to me once, "What is your favorite book that you you wrote?" And this really is my favorite book that I've written. It's called Eva Kelly's Book of Book Reviews. And when I was working at the library as a children's librarian, you know, one of the things that I had to do was I had to check in all these stacks and stacks and stacks of children's books that people had brought back, you know, 40 or 50 people a morning bringing back a stack of 10 or 20 books at a time, you know. So all these books are crossing before my eyes. And I had just introduced this character, Eva, who was the granddaughter of one of the, one of the girls in the original stories. And she's four or five years old. And I looked at these books and I thought, I wonder what Eva would think of this book. So I got a scrap of paper and I wrote a review in Eva's voice and set it aside. And then I did a few more. And then I realized after a while, I had like a hundred of these little reviews. So I just assembled them into a, a book review book that is children's book reviews written in the voice of a five-year-old girl, you know? Love and that. and it was it was fun to do it, but it was just something that came up like, hmm, I wonder, you know, you know, if I took it too seriously, I would have dismissed it and never done it, you know, but it was just fun and mm -hmm. something to kill time at work, you know? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's great. Well, E.E. E. Cummings, like, wrote on the back of, like, receipts or something. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. His poem, his short, short poems, is you don't think she is still available yes. uh, for people? Yes, yeah? yes, uh, for Kindle and in print. Awesome. And are you are you still keeping up with like Facebook and and that? Yes. Is, is that where the characters developed? Okay. Yes, there's a there's a Facebook group called Welcome to Quaker Valley that I post as much of this stuff as I can remember to post um and that's where i put all the character posts there are, right now i'm working with let's see i'm counting them in my head um margo brian christy mora eva there six six characters that i have on facebook and four of them were in you don't think she is 
and then the follow-up, which is called Meeting Dennis Wilson. Um, but uh, except now it's 40 years later and they're adults and, you know, a couple of them are grandparents and the kids are in the, on it now too, you know, and uh, it's a lot of fun. It's just fun. That's the, that's the main thing, you know. I, I I think that if, if I were to boil down what I do to anything, it would just be what do I enjoy and what do I get a kick out of? If it makes me laugh, then I know that I might be on the right track, you know? Now, again, you know, you might get it in front of an audience and the audience doesn't think it's funny at all, but that's the risk that you take. The bravery you have on that kind of work, you know, it's fun, but it's like to put it out there, you know, that's just so incredible, Max. <laughs> well, the, you know, the other thing too that's funny is, is that, putting those characters out there on Facebook, there are some people who have interacted with them who don't know that they're fictional characters. And yeah, that's I what I would think. Quite known how, I haven't quite known how to deal with that sometimes, you know, and I hope that I've handled it, you know, uh, and I've, <laughs> of course on, in other, in other instances, I've kind of encouraged it, <laughs> but you know, that again, um, it takes it takes on a different quality when somebody's interacting because it takes a story or an idea in an unpredictable direction, you know. And and you know, it's 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 fun, but at the same time, it's like I've reached a point here lately where I'm like, okay, I've got ten years of material here that I've been writing through these characters. What do I do with it now? You know what I mean? It's mm. like. And I, 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 when I started to look back at it, I saw certain themes come up, you know, like, for instance, Brian and Margo from the original story are now in their 60s and his parents are at the age where they're, you know, close to the end. So he's got to deal with, um, on the one hand, having elderly parents and then on the other hand, having a college age daughter, you know, so how do all these different things play together, you know, the, and they're not things that I thought of as themes originally, but when I take that stuff and try to make a book out of it, um, I'll have that material to draw on. And that those ideas might not have even come up if I hadn't had the freedom to play with it. You know, mm-hmm. that, that, that is such a big thing to play, you know, that, you know, the children's library and you're watching kids play this friend of mine, uh, who does, um, spiritual coaching says, you know, don't take it so seriously play, you know, that, that word is so huge. And, and maybe that's something that it gets missed with Goddard and the way that Goddard does things is that they do encourage in a way, a sense of play, you know, you, you take it seriously, but you don't take it seriously. You know, you're encouraged to explore and to play because right. that's where you find things, you know, unexpected right. things. Yeah, I think that's a great um, uh, summarization of what you did by moving these characters to being live, right, in this world that is interacting with this new media and where people are confused. Is this a real person? How do I interact with, you know, and all of those kind of things that just allows for that play and then adaptation. And then you get this culmination. You're going, wait, 10 years of work in this world. And what does it mean? And how does it work? But it's, it's been that exploration that whole time, which is just really incredible, Max, and really unique. I mean, an original, I mean, I, I don't know about you. Maybe there are other um, elements of that, but the fact that you've been able to 
harness that and have people that have been engaged and interested in that for many, many years is really incredible and a testament to you to continue to do that because you obviously still enjoy it. Uh, but also, uh, it's been purposeful and meaningful to others as well. So that's that's wonderful. I did want to hit on one last thing, though, um, and that's um, – I know we're running really a bit over now, but I do want to ask you about your um, about your interest in the mystical teachings of Neville Goddard and that you've published two ebooks and quotes pulled from Neville's teachings. I've seen you post things, things online about Neville, and it's really fascinating, his kind of approach uh, to spiritual elements. And I just, you know, I, I, I really love your kind of sense of that. And obviously, we could do a whole other podcast on this, but maybe just in a, in a short, compact sense, tell us what Neville um, means to you and why you wanted to sort of um, pull elements of, of Neville's uh, teachings and thoughts and life um, together um, in, in a spiritual sort of sense? Well, you know, the, the easiest way to describe about 10 years ago, I always liked Henry Miller, the writer, and I found a quote of his where he said, it wasn't until I moved to Paris that I took total responsibility for my life. And I was able to stand up and say, yes, I did this. Yes, your honor, guilty as charged. Yes, yes, yes. It was all my fault. It was all my responsibility. I could say that and feel good about doing it. And I remember reading that quote and thinking, you know, I would love to feel that way. You know, like I know that I am the one running the running the ship, running the boat, that everything is my responsibility, that I can't blame anybody or anything like that. And then just through the years, actually, the way it happened, another Goddard MFA connection, um, Paul Selig was the director of the creative writing program when I was a student there. And he started doing these channel texts um, of this very mystical spiritual stuff. And, and it was fascinating stuff to me. And, um, that kind of opened a door to thinking and looking at the way that I thought about myself, spirit, psychology, and all that. And one thing led to another. And I discovered the, this person, Neville Goddard, who has absolutely no relationship at all to Goddard college. And, um, his teaching basically is just saying that the reality that you perceive is psychological in nature and that anything that you encounter in your life is in your consciousness primarily. Um, and when you think about it, when you really delve into it, what else can you know except what you perceive? So it follows then from that, that you can use this sort of as a creative principle. And there are all sorts of other elements to it, but uh, it it basically is is a way to. It's given me the feeling that I wanted to have when I read that Henry Miller quote that that I'm the one running my show, you know, on on the very deepest level and on a practical ground roots level that the things that I believe about life uh, come forth to confront me. Whether I want them to or not, that's another question, you know, but uh, that that really was was it for me, you know, uh, the the feeling of, of total responsibility for my own life, which was something that I didn't feel like I had um, before before Goddard, 
really. You know, that was that was a huge step, you know, saying, okay, I'm a writer and I want to explore these things and and feeling free to do them and then having done them saying, Yeah, all right, this is mine. I own this, you know. That so it it really does tie together, even though it seems totally unrelated on the surface. It makes total sense. The ownership of that, right? So that that spiritual ownership in that regard, and that that's on your yourself and in, in that, and feeling whole in that, and that's who you are. So that's yeah. yeah I just also, love and and also the thing that's stressed in in at Goddard is a sense of responsibility. Um, he quotes scripture. He says that the two most important commandments in scripture are the Lord is one and love your neighbor as yourself. You know, uh, if you see that everybody is a sort of divine spark, then you have a respect for them that you wouldn't have. Otherwise you can't look down on anybody. And then that being true, of course, you're going to have a sense of responsibility and a sense of wanting to lift the people around you and give and, and teach and help you know, and lift the water level so that everybody rises. You know, it's it's far from being selfish, which is how I lived, unfortunately, for many years, you know. Mm, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that, uh, Max, for sure. So, um, well, I think we're going to wrap up here. Um, Max, we really um, just appreciate you sharing your history, your work with Goddard, your work in writing. Your, your connection with music and education, uh, your spiritual connection and your, your continued uh, work in your characters. Um, and obviously, you know, your interest in, in, in so many areas that are just um, uh, inspiration to others. And also as a, as a Goddardite representative of um, two different programs and Goddard as a whole in that way of sort of pedagogical thinking. So um, our guests can find more information that we're going to put in the show notes um, with Max um, where um, podcasts are listened to, but also um, on his website, uh, Uh So thanks so much for joining us today, Max. And uh, thank you for having uh, me. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a blast. Thanks, thank Max. you. Thanks for listening to our latest episode with Max Shanks. You can find out more about Max at his website, maxshankswrites.com. Please check out that in the show notes. Please visit our alumni website, goddardalumni.com, and sign up for an account. Also, additional projects on the alumni website include Alumni Ambassador, where you can volunteer to speak with prospective students about your time at Goddard. Thanks for listening to... Goddard in the World podcast. This podcast is a project of Goddard Alumni Council. It is produced and hosted by Casey Corona and Amanda Faye Laxon. It is edited by Amanda Faye Laxon. If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast or would like more information, please visit goddardalumni.com slash podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast in your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. See you next time.